Abolition. Abolition. The labor system that took shape in the late 19th century developed coercive means to ensure that cotton remained king. It was called convict leasing. Get arrested on a minor charge or a trumped-up charge, you could find yourself locked up and then hired out to a corporation bidding on inmate labor. The pipeline from prisons to profits in this country has deep roots. The aftermath of slavery was in some ways worse than slavery itself. Unlike before, when someone who owned you, driving you too hard was counterproductive because you would lose your investment. Convict leasing was different. You could get them cheaper, and if you actually drove them to death, there was more where that came from. In the 13th Amendment, which ends the institution of slavery, of course, there is a loophole. Convicts who have been convicted of a crime, they actually can be forced to work for free. In Alabama in 1850, 99% of the people who were incarcerated were white. In Alabama by the 1880s, 85% of the people incarcerated were black. So we could have a debate about how many of those black people were actually innocent, or we could have a conversation about the use of the criminal justice system to target both the innocent and the guilty alike. That continues all the way to the present, where even today, about just under 40% of the nation's prisoners are black, and yet the African-American population is about 13%. They are snatching up bodies everywhere to fuel this system. The idea in which more money can be made out of their incarceration is still very much part of our criminal justice system. Um, I think uh, if one of the things with the 13th Amendment, as with any other provision, it needs the people to step forward and embrace it. And right now we have a very explosive social movement, powerful social movement that's resonating across the country, the Black Lives Matter movement. I think the 13th Amendment is an ideal vehicle for that. People don't tend to think of it because of the victory of the enemies of the 13th Amendment in limiting it to its historical purpose of eliminating chattel slavery. But it's sitting there waiting to be grabbed. Yeah, it's, I, I think that there are so many opportunities that that amendment does, uh, but it opens many doors. Uh, I think what has happened in the past is that because our Supreme Court changes from generation to generation, uh, we, we go back to square one. And I think that perhaps if there was some other mechanism to make these changes, it would be great, but it seems that that is the only way we're talking about a constitutional amendment. But yes, it does become problematic. Well, you know, I would tell the gentleman to read uh, Abraham Lincoln, who's also cited in my book. And Abraham Lincoln praises the framers of the Constitution, many of whom were slave owners, and he knew it. And he said, because they could not resolve this issue there and then, they left it to their progeny to do it. And that's what the Declaration of Independence does, as I've explained in my books too, 
As Abraham Lincoln explained over and over and over again, the same men who wrote and adopted the Declaration of Independence, which talks about the, the, the natural rights, the unalienable rights of the individual, not just white men, not just men, not just white, but every human being, set the stage for at some point the abolition of slavery. This is Lincoln's position, it's my position, it's really the only rational position there is. You just heard a Max Smith mashup featuring clips from Be Woke Presents Black History in Two Minutes or So, followed by quotes from a panel discussion, Slavery versus Liberty, the History and Relevance of the 13th Amendment at 150 by the American Bar Public Education Division. And lastly, a quote from In-Depth with Mark Levin on C-SPAN. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard, 6 Central and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org. As you will find from start to finish, this is a program unlike any other. My name is Max Parthas. I'm joined by co-host Yusuf Hassan. Peace, Yusuf. Peace, Max. Peace, Harmony. And co-host Harmony Wise. Peace, Harmony. You may be muted. <laughs> Sorry about that. Peace, y'all. How are y'all doing? It's all good. Good, good. Tonight... Tonight, we become the explainers-in-chief with everything you want to know about the 13th Amendment but didn't know who to ask, where it came from, how it's used, the effect it has had on the criminal justice system, what opposition it has encountered, and how repealing and replacing the 13th Amendment can make a difference with American society and law. But before we go ahead and get into that deep stuff, let's get a few words from our co-hosts and how your weeks have been. What's up, Harmony? How has your week been? And what can we look for from you today? Uh, my week has been pretty good. Um, just working and just maintaining day by day with this quarantine. Um, the stay-at-home order. I'm a little bit nervous about the governor trying to reopen everything May 1st, but hopefully he pushes it back. Um, but my topic today will be focused on Ohio prisons, specifically uh, Marion Correctional Institute. Institution. Yes, they are uh, right now. I think the worst in the country. So, looking forward to hearing the information that comes from you about that, uh, brother Yusuf. How's your week, man? Man, hey, it's been a great week, man. Great week. You know, third day of Ramadan, so I'm supercharged and amped, energized behind yeah. that. And you know, I have a lot of information to share today, dealing with the legal route that the 13th Amendment has taken, how it has progressed through the courts and the major decisions that have come about because of that. Man, we ain't playing tonight. We're really going to be dropping some knowledge on you. Um, this week, I got a couple of things to celebrate. You know, we just got our 501c3 certificate for the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, so we're officially have our certificate to hang on the wall. Uh, that's pretty cool. And also, um, Today is my son Justice's birthday, Justice Mays, and also one of our um, advocates, strongest advocates out there, and a sponsor is Crystal Roundtree. So birthdays to all of y'all. Yeah, happy birthday, Justice. Happy birthday, birthday to Crystal and happy birthday to uh, Justice. 
<laughs> yep, and you might as well say happy birthday to the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center too, because today, just a little yesterday, we just saying, right? So yeah. also, I want to remember that on April twenty fourth, in eighteen seventy seven, federal troops began leaving occupied southern states twelve years after the war, ending the reconstruction reconstruction period and beginning hell on earth for blacks left in the South. So we're just commemorating that day and remembering it, April twenty fourth, eighteen seventy seven, when they began to let the Southerners have their way with us. Um, I guess we're going to start with uh, Harmony Wise this week. Uh, we want to hear about, the, you know, what's going on in Ohio and the, the circumstances that, that we have to deal with right now as far as this COVID virus in the prison. All right. Um, so just going to give a quick update um, just from a few articles I've been reading over um these past few days. So as of April 22nd, 3,792 inmates across Ohio State prison facilities have received positive diagnosis for COVID-19 since um, the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections began testing as of April 11th. 2011 inmates from Marion County, meaning 78% of inmates have tested positive for COVID-19 at the Marion Correctional Institute, and that's located in Marion County, Ohio. An updated article from the dispatch uh, dated April 25th states Marion County, Marion Correctional Institute spokesperson uh, named Joellen Smith said as of Friday, April 24th, only 2,300 tests have been administered. However, she did not specify as did that number included employees as the prison itself has around 2,500 inmates. However, Marion County still has a higher number per capita than almost every other county in Ohio, including densely populated uh, counties such as Franklin County, which is my local county, and Cuyahoga County. Uh, Marion Public Health Administration stated 112 cases have been reported among county residents half which are linked to prison workers. So in Marion County, they have a lot of people who uh, work within the prison, um, whether it be COs or administration, et cetera. Um, so they're basically worried that those prison workers who have tested positive are um, actually spreading it to their family members. So it's increasing the amount of folks who are testing positive within Marion, Marion County, even outside of the prison. Um, so our uh, ODRC director, Annette Chambers-Smith, she actually contributes the high count of COVID cases in Marion Correctional Institute to the inmates being older with pre-existing health conditions as well as being asymptomatic. They're saying as of now, 95% of the inmates actually had no symptoms. So they would have, if they didn't get tested, they would have never caught that they were actually positive for COVID-19. So as of April 26, there is a record of 17 Ohio prisoners that have died from probable or confirmed COVID-19 related cases. Um, 11 of the prisoners were at Pickaway Correctional Institution and two were at Franklin Medical Center and four at Marion Correctional Center. Prison advocates locally and across the state are holding protests in solidarity with the inmates 
and asking Governor DeWine to release all prisoners due to the COVID-19 crisis. There's actually a local campaign going on in Columbus. We are asking, they are asking, the organizers are asking for 20,000 prisoners to be released uh, in May, so 20, 20K in May. And there's, I also posted a link. There's actually inmates speaking out um, in Marion um, Correctional Institute, and there's inmates actually speaking about how the COs are not going to wash their clothes anymore. And this is the same prison that I spoke about two weeks ago um, where they are actually making them make their own masks. So now they're cutting off their laundry services as well. So how are they supposed to clean the mask that they're being forced to make? Um, that's all I have as of now. The cases are increasing each day. And so locally and across the state, we're just asking them to be freed because most of the uh, prisoners, inmates, that are in these uh, jails and prisons, they're low-level and nonviolent offenders. So you're going to have a guy who probably has a drug charge. Now he's going to, you know, die potentially from a deadly virus uh, because the governor doesn't want to free these people. So we're asking to have them all freed, and um, hopefully the governor, he signs an order where these inmates are freed because it's, the case is only going to get higher, and they still have people working in those prisons and jails so that's going to, they're going to go back into general population and spread the virus even more, including to their families at home. And that's all I have for now, Max. And um, I am actually going to be speaking with some local organizers, um, and I will get more information on what's going on locally so we can, I can talk about that next week. Thank you. I appreciate that uh, research about what's happening there in Ohio. Um, I was also reading a little bit too, and uh, see the Gary Daniels, the chief lobbyist for the American Civil Liberties Union of Ohio, was saying that they have a prison that's been overcrowded for decades. And you know, as we explained mm-hmm. last week, that uh, shift from 100% occupancy as a limit to 150% occupancy as a limit came uh, mostly because the prisons, private prisons, needed to do that in order to uh, put more bodies into those cells. And that just created conditions for this type of thing to flourish, a pandemic where prisons are not only 150% filled, but as much as 200 or even 300% in places like Alabama. Yusuf? Yeah, uh, Harmony, I have a question for you regarding uh, Marion, because last time I checked, I saw it was like almost 80% uh, have been uh, tested positive for the uh, virus, and I know that there was the incidents of uh, the National Guard being called to the prison. Has there been any update as to why they're there? I haven't seen an update as to why they were there. Um, Last I heard, the National Guard were there just basically to um, help out with the, the I guess because the prisoners were, you know, reacting, so I guess to calm it down, basically. But I haven't had an update. That is something actually I can look into um, and get more information. But because prisoners were reacting, um, you know, because they're locked in prison with a deadly virus, um, and they don't know who has what, and they're not being treated properly, and uh, they also have reduced the meals to – 
I think brunch and dinner or something uh-huh. less than that. <clears throat> um, so I, I believe they call the National Guard as like backup. Um, they say it's like for supplies or whatever, but they're obviously not receiving those supplies and they're being forced to make their own mask. So what supplies are you talking about? Um, yeah, and the whole concept of, also I wanted to add, the whole concept of social distancing is totally impossible. Um, like I said before, I work in a reentry facility, um, and it's barely it's barely possible for, you know, the guys there. We don't even have that many clients right now because we've been releasing a lot of clients on um, EM, electronic monitoring, so we can reduce the population in the facility because of the pandemic. Um, but even with the guys that we have, it's still virtually impossible to practice social distancing at all times. So there's just a lot going on in Ohio, and um, I really hope the governor, he signs an order. He needs to be speaking on it more. But, you know, this the prison system is what runs capitalism. So here we are. The, um, the virus isn't much different than the system itself. It attacks both that's the right. innocent and the guilty, and that's what the system has been doing, attacking both the innocent and the guilty and targeting them just the to system increase is a virus. population. <laughs> For profit, you know, Yusuf and I were having our, our, our discussions about I don't know what was about three days ago or so. We was talking about the whole pie, Yusuf, and right. we uh, determined that based on the most uh, accurate information that we've been able to find from PrisonPolicy.org, that the whole pie 2020, uh, up to a million to 1.2 million people really can be released from these prisons immediately. I mean. Uh, when we're talking about the percentage of people who are in there for particular reasons, they've got it broken down. For violent crimes, for instance, just the state prison is 713,000. You know, but those are divided by murder, manslaughter, rape, sexual assault, robbery, assault, uh, and other violent crimes. The rest is property crimes, drug crimes, public order crimes, or people who haven't been convicted of anything and they're just sitting in jails. That adds up to over a million people right now whose lives are at risk. And imagine being told something like, you know, this thing kills, what, 7% of the population? 7% of you are going to die. We don't know who. We're going to keep you all together and not separate you or test you or find out just to let it happen. That is a death sentence, and of course people are uh, going crazy in prisons right now. So, yeah. yeah totally agree that. That. Uh, Yusuf or, or Harvey, anything more to add to that? No, sir, I don't have anything else to add. Thank yeah, you. that's it for now for me. We, we'll, we'll definitely look into that issue every week, you know, going forward. Because we know that, you know, our topic tonight is one of the root causes as to why that situation is going on. Right. That's our goal here tonight, to kind of show the world that that is the case. If you're going to fight something, fight it at the root. Get rid of the root and, and the seed, and, and the fruit won't be falling anymore. You know, take it out, root and stem, the whole thing. The 13th Amendment is the problem. And we're going to point that out from uh, a number of professionals and intellectuals who have really taken time to try to understand this, and even from a few who had no clue until somebody out of the blue pointed it out to them. <laughs> I know it sounded like a poem, but it wasn't. I was just saying. <laughs> anyway, let's start at the beginning, right? So <clears throat> we've already heard the conversation at the introduction of the show 
of the program where they were saying that the aftermath of slavery was worse than slavery. And uh, to repeat it, uh, a system that targets both the innocent and the guilty. So the exception clause and its evolution from 1777 to 1865, a timeline. We started in Vermont, and now we're here. The first one came out in Vermont. That was in 1777. And I'd like to read that to you because it set precedence and showed exactly what the intentions were from the very beginning of this type of language being put into a state constitution. It says that all persons born free, their natural rights, slavery prohibited, that all persons are born equally free and have certain natural inherent inalienable rights, amongst which are the enjoying and defending life and liberty, acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Therefore, no person born in this country or bought from overseas ought to be holding by law to serve any person as a servant, slave, or apprentice after arriving at, to the age of 21 years, unless bound by the person's own consent, after arriving to such age, or bound by law for the payment of debts, damages, fines, costs, or the like. So you could be enslaved in Vermont for the like, for fines, for costs, for fees, and that is still mm-hmm. the Constitution today. And then it went on to the Northwest Ordinance, which came 10 years later, 1787, and that was Article 6 where they said, there shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in the said territory, otherwise than in the punishment of crimes where the party shall have been duly convicted, provided always that any person escaping into the same from whom labor or services lawfully claimed in any one of the original states, such fugitive may be lawfully reclaimed and conveyed to the person claiming his or her labor or service as aforesaid. So they are telling you right there exactly what they plan to use this for, to capture new slaves. Ohio uh, in 1806, Ohio was the second state to actually adopt this type of language. And there's included a list of people who are available to be saved. They say, there shall be neither slavery nor voluntary servitude in this state, otherwise than for the punishment of crimes, where the party shall have been duly convicted, or shall any male person arriving at the age of 21 years or female person arriving at the age of 18 years be held to serve any person as a servant under the pretense of indenture or otherwise, unless... Such person shall enter into such indenture while in a state of perfect freedom and on a condition of a bona fide consideration receiving or to be received for their service, except as before accepted. They got a lot of accepts in Ohio. Nor shall any indenture of any Negro or mulatto hereafter made and executed out of the state or if made by the state where the term of the service exceeds one year be of the least validity, except those given in the case of apprenticeships. So, yes, Ohio went overboard with their accepts. And number four came in 1861. That was the one that people don't know a lot about, but it was uh, very much supported by Abraham Lincoln, and it's called the Corwin Amendment. And the Corwin Amendment on uh, March 2nd of 1861 uh, would have made slavery uh, break- unbreakable in the Constitution, meaning, let me read it out loud, no amendment shall be made to the Constitution, which will authorize or give to Congress the power to abolish or interfere with any state, with the domestic institutions thereof, including that of persons held to labor or service by the state, the laws of the said state. So basically, they would have made it so Congress could never abolish slavery. Number five came in 1861. That was Alabama. 
Alabama has basically the same thing in their constitution that the 13th Amendment has. And the 13th Amendment came only a few years after Alabama in 1861. It's what we know today, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, where the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist for the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Over time, and long after 1865, in order to benefit from convict lease systems, many states like California, which were not slave states, still adopted that pro-slavery language into their state constitutions. In 2008, Colorado became the first state to remove the exception from their state's constitution, marking 377 years since the first British colony, Massachusetts, made slavery legal in 1641. There are 23 states that still have an exception to slavery in their state constitution. And as of this month in 2020, approximately seven are actively attempting to follow Colorado's lead. And there you have it. That's how slavery began through the state's constitution, starting in 1771 all the way up to what we have today. Wow, (laughs) Wow. You know, so, yeah, there you have it. Where did it come from? That's the root of it right there. You know, a lot of times people talk about the 13th Amendment. They never even say, well, where did it come from? And what does it actually say? Well, you just broke it down right there. You know, great job, by the way. And, you know, it stays consistent. They keep showing you this is what it's for from the very beginning. This is what it's for. And I don't know how we get to 2020 thinking it's for something else. Right. And and once I do my once I do my segment, you'll actually see that that's exactly it. That its intended uh, consequences are continuing and continuing. And I'm going to show the link to where it was separated. I don't want to give it away for my part because <laughs> I hear you on that. I think everybody's uh, annoyed. I don't think anyone has ever touched on it this way because it's something that just really came to me yesterday. Like I said, we're about to hit a home run up in here on the 13th Amendment and show people exactly how it works and why it works that way. Harmony, did you have any commentary on, on uh, what you just heard? Um, yes. I wanted to say that makes so much sense uh, when you mentioned Ohio. Um, and it's uh, how it worded the 13th Amendment and its constitution. Uh, makes so much sense as to why there is such a high rate of prison inmates in the state of Ohio um, and just nationally it just all makes sense so I just don't understand how people can still deny that slavery has not been abolished or you know want to call themselves prison abolitionists but the root is slavery so it's like and it's a little bit backwards to me but I just want to thank you again like for educating us and getting a little bit more in depth with the history of it all because it's important to know the history of it all so you can understand what's currently still happening today. And I hope more states um, do follow in the footsteps of Colorado. But again, thank you, Max. Appreciate that, uh, indeed. And, and we're going to take it even deeper. You know, uh, we started from the beginning. Like I said, we started from Vermont, and now we're here. So uh, we showed you how, we, how it all began uh, what we want to do next is kind of show you how it all comes together and what the intentions were even further. 
Um, I did so much research over the week on this particular subject, and over the years I've heard a lot of discussions and panels and such. But only a few people have really described what we're dealing with in the appropriate words and terminology with the right feelings and everything that goes with it. And that's one of those that I know of is the great griot. And uh, this was written by Monty Tano, and you can find her or him at Monty Tano on YouTube. And the title is, Did the 13th Amendment Really End Slavery? Again, from the great griot. This is going to take about, you know, 12 minutes, 13 minutes, but it's well worth it. So hang on and listen now. Abolition. Abolition. The 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, ratified on December 6, 1865, is the document that set black people free. It set us on a course of liberation, took the chains off of us, supposedly. Have you ever read the 13th Amendment? No. Have you really read the 13th Amendment? Shall we? Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States, or any place subject to their jurisdiction. The 13th Amendment never made slavery unconstitutional. It merely set conditions on how slavery, coupled with peonage, could remain constitutional. After the Civil War in America, the South was left in shambles. The war strategies of the North did exactly what it was designed to do destabilize the southern economic infrastructure and disrupt the normal social structure of whites being in direct control of black enslaved labor. So enters a system whereby persons under the jurisdiction of a state can be brought to slave status using a loophole in the 13th Amendment via criminalization. Basically, if you are convicted of a crime, your punishment can be slavery. Oh, but not just that good old-fashioned American chattel slavery. Uh-uh. Out with the old and with the new. This was slavery with a twist. Slavery rental. Convict leasing. Mr. President, I have a brother about 14 years old. A man hired him for me and I heard of him no more. He went and sold him to McGree, and they've been working him in prison for 12 months. I asked him to let me have him, but he, he won't let him go. You can't name where I ain't been down. Under slavery, most black crime was punished by slaveholders, leaving the courts to discipline whites. Now, only about 10% of those arrested were white. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that white people are not committing crimes in the South? We know that's not true. Southern states had a history of placing prisoners with industries that would bear the cost of guarding and housing them in exchange for their labor. 
Now states also began to charge fees, renting prisoners to companies by the month. The highest rates were for the strongest workers and longest sentences. This means that states had incentives to arrest and convict as many black males and females as they could round up, sentencing them to be slaves for private companies, plantations, and directly for the state. It took time for the state to realize that prisoners, believe it or not, could be a source of profit. Once that revenue starts coming in, they're pleasantly surprised. This is new revenue we never had before. The state of Alabama earned $14,000 in its first year of convict leasing, 1874. By 1890, revenue was $164,000, roughly $4.1 million today. And if you thought that pre-13th Amendment slavery was bad, convict leasing was worse. All these years of how we suffered, we have looked death in the face, worked hungry, thirsty, half-clothed, and sore. We would leave the cells around 3 o'clock a.m. and return at 8 o'clock p.m., going the distance of three miles through rain or snow. To describe the conditions in a coal mine at this time, to say that they're primitive, is you can't even imagine it. This is a place where, for weeks or months at a time, men might never see daylight. The mine was often filled with standing water around their ankles and their feet. They had to drink from that water. Disease ran rampant through these mines. They were incredibly dangerous places to work, being subjected to violent explosions, poisonous gases that were released as coal fell from the walls. In addition to the falling coal itself, whipping, keeping people chained up, um, brutal kinds of physical torture, and mental abuse are the norm. A lot of the things that kept people in control under slavery are amplified under this convict system. Someone working these kinds of forced laborers uh, would push them to the very limits of human endurance. Because the white lessee was not held responsible for the killing of a laboring prisoner. But even more important than knowing the history of convict leasing is understanding the tactics used to create the continuation of slavery. Here's a short list of what was made criminal for persons of color under the statute in the great state of South Carolina. A colored man leaving his wife. A colored woman leaving her husband. A person of color pursuing or practicing the trade of artisan, mechanic, or shopkeeper, or any other trade or business for his own benefit. A person of color doing business on equal terms with a white person. A person of color working for a white person and deemed by the white employer to not have enough skills and experience for the position. A black person being unemployed. The statute reads, 
that vagrancy and idleness are public grievances and must be punished as crimes. Please note that South Carolina was not the only state with black codes. In the southern states in general, things such as spitting, drinking alcohol in public, being drunk in public, loitering, could result in the African Americans being enslaved for vagrancy. Instead of black labor going to the rebuilding of our civilization, it was recaptured by way of new laws and policies and used to undergird the growth of their economy. With the help of their judicial system, all of these states were direct practitioners and beneficiaries of this new slave system. And the northern states were not innocent in this affair. Not only did they have black inmates laboring as slaves, but the North's financial institutions backed the enslaving industrialists and plantations in the South. In essence, convict leasing, along with peonage, or debt slavery, served as the post-13th Amendment guide for enslaving African Americans. And this remained the case with the quiet complicity of the federal government until after December 12, 1941, when Circular 3591 was issued. Circular 3591 was a document issued under the order of President Franklin D. Roosevelt to give the okay to start prosecuting cases of involuntary servitude of black people in America. But you always have to ask the question, why? Why, after almost 80 years of turning a blind eye, was the federal government all of a sudden so eager to serve justice for black folks? I'll tell you this, it was not out of the warm humanity spot in their heart that they shared with the black population to end slavery. It was once again a war tactic, a strategy, pure optical illusion, because having slavery practice on the blacks in the U.S. was a bad image for the propaganda that was needed by the U.S. when entering World War II. The same way that some people live in clutter, but they dust off real quick and shove stuff in the closet before everybody comes over? <laughs> yeah. See, we really are democratic. Let's not forget, they also needed blacks to join the military. My prepared text today was to have been Make Thy Name Be Remembered in All Generations. But I think I'm going to depart from my prepared sermon. While I was listening to the sergeant's solo, I kept looking up at our service flag. I was thinking of the men in service. And if you figure that you were safe because Circular 3591 was written in 1941, and that is in the past. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, over one-third of sentenced prisoners under the state and federal jurisdiction are black. Not black and Hispanic. Just blacks comprise over one-third of the prison populations here in America. Yet, we only make up one-sixth of the general population. The NAACP reported in 2009 that around 14 million whites reported using illegal drugs, compared to 2.6 million African Americans. Yet, despite this 5 to 1 ratio of white self-reported users to black counterparts, 
Police jailed 10 times more African Americans than white drug offenders. And 59% of those in state prisons for drug offenses showing clear bias in the arrest process and the incarceration process. African Americans were reported to serve as much time in prison for drug-related nonviolent offenses as whites for violent offenses. And yes, if you have loved ones locked away in jail cells today, chances are you are still making your favorite industrialist rich. Filthy rich. Here are just a few companies who have been reported to utilize prison labor manufactured goods, services, or who have otherwise profited from their financial involvement in the prison industrial complex. The 13th Amendment did not make slavery unconstitutional. It merely created an optical illusion. But let's get it straight. It did not create an optical illusion for this European government that created the system to run exactly as it does. It did not create an optical illusion in those who carry out the disenfranchisement. Judges, police, prosecutors. And it did not create an optical illusion in the many companies who benefit directly and indirectly from this enslavement. Who it did create an optical illusion for? is the millions of us who feel like slavery and racism is a thing of the past, while yes, having more enslaved today than we did at the peak of chattel slavery. But we are just scratching the surface on removing our optical illusions, starting today with that 13th Amendment and how it did not make slavery unconstitutional. It just merely restructured slavery. We have 25% of the world's prison population, 5% of the world's population. Um, so prisoners under the 13th Amendment uh, it, it essentially work as in a form of neo-slavery for about $1.30 a day. The Legislative Exchange Council, also known as ALEC, is snatching up public employees' jobs and they're also hurting small businesses. And the, the way that they're doing that is they are transferring jobs over to prison laborers. This is literally modern version of slave labor. Abolition. Abolition. You just heard, did the 13th Amendment really end slavery from the Great Glee written by Mami Tano? Um, I'm just going to pass the mic, man. That's a lot to unpack, but she really broke it down uh, hardcore on that. What do you think? Yeah, she did a great job. Great job. I'm, I'm just presuming that it's a, a woman since I was hearing a woman's voice, you know. But well, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if the speaker and the writer are the same. That's why I was uh, in question. That's true. Good point. Well, whomever the person is, I mean, he or she did a great job. I mean, really broke it down, you know, step by step by step. And, and, you know, it's all irrefutable and done right out in the open. It wasn't like any of this stuff is just like hidden knowledge. It's there for anybody willing to look, <laughs> you know. It's just that simple, right? Yeah. Yeah, done right in plain sight. Which, you, you know, since it's done, yeah. I'm sorry, Max, just one more point that I wanted to make. Since it's ahead, done so far open, I just can't grasp how people don't see the connection. Because it's done right out in the open for everyone to see. So how do they not see that it's slavery? 
Well, there's some of us who see it, that's for sure. And that number has been growing exponentially. Uh, at least since I've been in the fight, I've seen it growing exponentially. You know? Yes, me too. Yep. Um, we can come back to you. Uh, let me see if Harmony has anything to add. Um, yeah, I disagree. Like, she broke it down really, they broke it down really well. Um, and, um, I, something just came to me. It's like, you know how, like, they say, like, the best crimes are done in plain sight? That includes, uh, also that includes, um, crimes against, crimes against humanity because this is what this is. It's slavery. Slavery is a crime against humanity. And they've been able to do this, they've been able to do this in front of our eyes and no one even thinks to like look further into it. We're just, you know, fed what they give us and we believe it automatically. But I'm glad more people are coming around and um, over the years, I've only been a part of the abolition movement since uh, Yusuf had posted about it on Facebook in 2015. I was like, what? (laughs) And then I had to look into it myself and then I discovered Max and now I'm here. But, um, yeah, so I'm just glad more people are looking into this and, you know, are joining the fight because this is real, and this is the root of all of our issues in this country. How about that, right, Max, right. As, a, as a connection? You, you're the one that opened my eyes to it, and she's saying I'm the one that opened her eyes to it. Well, you know, it, it's a time effect. that we're all passionate. <laughs> we're, we're trying to educate everybody around us. You know, I've learned from people like Ashada Shakur, who uh, wrote in her book about finding out about the 13th Amendment, and that was back in the 60s, you know, and uh, Andrew Davis also has enlightened, uh, again, 60s and 70s, and, of course, our brother Lee Wood, who wrote, literally wrote the book on prison slavery, and that was back in the 60s. So this right. fight has been going on for quite some time, man. I think there was one little blank period around the 1930s area right there uh, where they kind of forgot people, you know, yeah, 1930s I'm going to touch on that. I guess that was sort of like during the time when they said, let's go back to the drawing board and figure out another way because too many people are hip to what's really going on now. We're getting a lot of pushback. But like I said, I'll cover that in my segment. Yeah, that's that's fantastic, man. There were some notes that I took down from what I heard. One thing is she pointed out how peonage played a large role as well as the sharecropping, you know, like they do today, with all the fines and fees. And if you can't pay the fines and fees, the ultimate end is prison, which is where they want you to be to begin with. But in this situation, prison is worse than slavery, as several people have mentioned on these clips already. Then I also noticed that whites, uh, when, it's, when they, she said whites want to be in control of black bodies, it put me in mind of Frederick Douglass's explanation of the Christianity of the slaveholder. And that's what was all throughout the South. So, yeah, they were definitely trying to control our bodies. If you leave your wife, we're going to put you in prison. If you spit on the ground, we're going to put you in prison. If you don't say mister, when you're talking to me, we're going to put you in prison. I mean, it was like there was some daddy-style steroids for sure with our our bodies and criminalizing us to make that money. And that itself. uh, I'm sorry. Yes. Go ahead, brother. Interrupt. It's fine. I was going to say, and that in itself hasn't even concluded because – we see with all of the uh, barbecue Bettys and all these others who have <laughs> popped up where it's like, okay, I told you not to be here. I told you to leave. I'm going to call the police on you. You know, basically, we're going to call the patty rollers. So that mentality is even passed on. 
you know, from generation to generation, that for some reason that it's in the mindset engraved in the DNA of the United States that black people are are to be controlled by whites. Yes, sir. Um, Oh. It's okay. Did you have more to say? No, no, because like I said, I don't want to step on my own toes for what I'm going to present later. Well, listen, brother, I know the research that you do, so I'm kind of setting you up. I'm building up to you, if you feel me. You know what I mean? Like, I'm giving you all kinds of supporting information, so when you get there, it's like easy, easy. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Right, exactly. But there was a couple of things that uh, more that I didn't notice. One is the type of human atrocities that were going on right here in the United States of America in front of everybody's faces and done upon primarily the black community. You know, we're just saying that it was 143 years and two days ago that they started this system <laughs> when the soldiers left and said, you know, have Adam, do whatever you're going to do. And right. if you heard in the clip, there was this one person explaining how they start their day at 3 a.m. and end their day at 8 a.m. working in the mines. You only seven hours left to do everything you got to do, sleep, bathroom, whatever it may be. And they would literally work people to death. And if you remember, one of the women that wrote about her brother, she said her 14-year-old brother, so this was child slavery, working children to death right alongside the adults. And that was heartbreaking for me. Also, the whole idea with the black codes that were coming up out of the South, this was all supported by the northern banks. You know what I mean? The northern banks were paying for all of these industries, and they were the ones that was running the mines and running the railroads and all of those types of things, you know? And she did something that really made me smile. She did not repeat the fallacy of the average. When she said that one over one-third of blacks um, make up the prison population, is, is one comprised of more than one-third of blacks, uh, basically it's 38%. And she said one-sixth of the population. She didn't say 13%. She said one-sixth of the population. But, you know, the truth of it, when you look into the data on race and gender, is uh, 6% of the U.S. population are men, and only 4% roughly are adult men. So you're talking about a 40% prison population coming from 4% of the population as a whole. That's nuts. I'll pass the mic now. Harmony? I'm sorry, I was muted. Um, no, I don't have anything, anything extra to add. All right. Well, um, what we're going to do is I, I do want to mention one more thing. Then we're going to go and take our music break after that. When we come back from our music break, we're going to listen to another clip from a speaker that I, I'll, I'll explain when we get to that point. But um, well, let me pull up this information here. But, yeah, man, I, I, I just was saying that uh, this is nuts, what we're dealing with, and we're showing you the roots of this evil, when it began. Here we are 143 years and two days later after this all uh, occurred. And uh, we know that it was never officially abolished because if you listen to certain historians, it's 21, 1921 or 1928, uh, depending on who, who's telling the story, that we finally finished with convict leasing but we all know here, and many of our educated listeners also know, that there's dozens of private companies we can name right now who are leasing convicts to use them for their goods and services. 
Um, so this is something that has to end, and we're going to get into that too. So in the meantime, let me pull this up here, and let's go into our music break today. It comes from uh, Cash Dow, and it's called 13th. Land of the free, in life, it's a moment of homeless. Too many die every day, and we really just want this freedom. And that was Cash Doll from 27, the most perfect album, 13th Amendment. Um, before we go into our clip, <clears throat> our next clip, I want to see if we get any comments from my co-host in regards to the uh, music. Because, you know, we be dropping them gems, man. And if you want to hear our music, all you have to do is go to youtube.com slash abolition today and go to the playlist, Abolition Music. It's hot, man. 
Yes, I would like to. <laughs> sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, I, sorry. Yeah, I would like to say something. So this uh, rapper, Cash Doll, on a personal uh, perspective, I really don't like her music. Um, but I'm really surprised that she wrote this, to be honest. Like, while when you said Cash Doll, I'm like, is he talking about Cash Doll? I had to do my own Google search real quick to see if, like, someone else had this name. But it's that cash doll rapper that I really don't like her music. So I was really surprised that she wrote about this. And there's an, actually an article in Vibe. I'm going to post it to the page. Um, but they're still calling it mass incarceration. Um, they say, they said cash doll puts pen to paper to breathe life into one of the Constitution's most controversial, controversial referendums, the 13th Amendment. While the 1865 ruling decried slavery in the United States of America, Indentured servitude <laughs> still fuels the country's economic system in the form of mass incarceration. Um, but I'm just really surprised that she wrote this, to be honest. It's a good song. Um, it makes me want to Everybody go a little knows. further into her discography, to be honest. And when you said Cash Doll next, I'm like, Cash Doll? Hold on, not Ice Out, girl. <laughs> she has that, that one song, Ice Out. But. <laughs> Yeah. That's how we roll here. Uh, it, uh, yeah, I was going to say something very similar to that because when I saw that, you know, you 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 had proposed to play that, and I said, well, let me go see who this cash doll is because I've never heard of her. And, you know, yeah, I, I co-signed <laughs> what Harmony said. You know, I, I looked at yeah. it and I looked and I said, nah. But I said, you know Everybody what? Everybody Yes. <laughs> and, and that goes to show, you know, like, you know, what Kanye did with the 13th Amendment. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. who saw that? You know, who saw it coming? You know, mm-hmm. kill him. if we take Killer Mike <laughs> when he was when his regular rap, nobody saw this coming. You know, right. So, and David Banner. You know that this message is reaching areas where, you know, we wouldn't expect it to reach, and we're having spokespeople we wouldn't expect to be the ones speaking on it. Right. You know, reach right. their audiences because okay, she has a following. So who amongst her following is going to be affected by what she's saying with the Thirteenth Amendment, and that's going to encourage them to go look into it. So it's definitely an exponential effect, and yeah, it just caught me off guard, but. Hey, I'm glad I'm glad that she did it, and thanks for sharing that, Max. Because I'm, you know, I didn't even know of her before that. Again, anybody wants to hear the abolition music? It's all wonderful tracks, and some surprising, probably never heard before. Just go to YouTube.com/slash Abolition Today and check out our abolition music playlist. Uh, I'm going to play a clip next, and uh, I'm going to give a lead up to this clip. It's from a discussion: uh, slavery versus liberty. The History and Relevance of the 13th Amendment at 150 by the American Bar Public Education Division. And we're going to hear Charles Sullivan from Jailhouse Lawyers speak. He was in the audience speaking to esteemed panelists, uh, and I want to name these people for a specific reason. Uh, it was Jamal Green, the Vice Dean and Professor of Law in Columbia Law School, Edna Green Medford, Chair, Professor of History at Howard University, James Gray Pope, Professor of Law, and Sidney Reitman, Scholars Rutgers Law School, and Rebecca Zeitlau, Charles W. Fornoff, Professor of Law and Values 
University of Toledo College of Law. In an hour and a half of discussions that I listened to with them, none of them mentioned the exception clause until Brother Charles Sullivan came up out of the audience and asked them a simple question. Let's listen to it. Abolition. Abolition. Uh, my name is Charles Sullivan, and I uh, am the leader of a international prison reform uh, organization. I've been involved in prison reform for over 40 years. Uh, and during that time, it has been discussed many times about the exception clause, uh, about uh, the motivation to eliminate it. Uh, in fact, uh, our policy advocate uh, advisor and I are actually talking to people on Capitol Hill about doing this. I think at the time is right, like you said. Uh, and, uh, and there are many reasons to remove the exception clause, uh, as we know. Uh, but I think perhaps the biggest reason is that we still tolerate slavery in our Constitution, no matter how you, you cut it. And slavery exists more now throughout the world. So I think that argument, as well as the argument uh, when you do eliminate the exception clause and you have prisoners functioning in our workforce, etc., they're able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Uh, the work ethic, which is very much in our society, very much a Republican uh, concept. Most, I think, think prisoners are sitting around uh, being warehoused, and I think that's true because they haven't been given the opportunity. So that is somewhat different uh, that has been presented by the panel. I would mind, wouldn't mind if some, if you wanted to react to the exception clause, because I think it is uh, very, very apt of an opportunity to perhaps uh, start the dialogue, mm -hmm. even if we don't pass it. ERA did not pass, but it started a dialogue. Mm -hmm. Anyone want to speak? You want to, Jim? Um, just as the ERA eventually resulted in a reinterpretation of the 14th Amendment, mm -hmm. Uh, the punishment clause, it seems to be, only excludes, only permits slavery and involuntary servitude if it's imposed as a punishment, as a punishment. Is the system today really have to do with punishment for crime or does it have to do with the creation of crime, making, criminalizing things, and then adopting law enforcement policies that are certain to result in the imprisonment of people whose labor is then exploited for private prison corporations and private corporations, is that really uh, as a punishment for crime? I, I don't think so. I think it's more analogous to the kind of convict leasing systems uh, that people now generally recognize uh, run afoul of the amend ran afoul of the amendment, although it wasn't challenged at the time uh, back in the late 1800s. So I, I think that's a, a, a splendid idea, and I admire you for having worked so hard so long on it. Well, I, I think this is an area that that needs some work, that where scholars can do some work. Um, I don't think there's been enough work. I, I'm, I'm really not convinced that um, that the framers of the 13th Amendment intended uh, people who were convicted of crimes to be enslaved. You know, I just, 
you know, I'm not convinced of that. Maybe I could be convinced. Maybe Professor Medford could speak to this. She's I see here, uh, but I, I'd like to see some more research done uh, on that exactly itch, issue and perhaps some litigation brought. This might, I, even though I said I don't like courts much, I don't. But this might actually be an area where uh, some litigation is needed to try to clarify what does that exceptions clause mean? Could you know? Well, yes, if I could, and I don't want to dominate, but we we have a lot of prisoners. Uh, and as you know, jailhouse lawyers are very, very uh, talented uh, in the law. And we've asked them two questions, and it's been very interesting. What has been the impact of the exception clause? And what is the impact of the exception clause if it's removed? Mm -hmm. Which is very interesting. And, and, and it's kind of a mixed, I guess, view on what the past has been, but also what is the future? Are we talking about prisoners being able to belong to unions, which I think it is, you know. So there is a lot, like you say, a lot of work. This has been very, very uh, educational. Uh, thank you. We're looking forward to, and I won't say more. All right. Once again, that was Charles Sullivan, Jailhouse Lawyer's speech, uh, talking at this, to this esteemed panel. Um, I'm sure that my co-hosts have some comments about what they just heard. Yusuf, or, or oh, I'm sorry for laughing about that, but, I mean, applause to Charles Sullivan for putting no. these so-called scholars on the spot. And I'm just, I'm speechless as to what uh, the response was when the woman stated, you know, well, I don't feel as though that the framers did this they intended for the clause to be carried out the way it is and you know we're getting ready to get into it to see how yeah it was it's being carried out exactly how it was intended and the courts rubber stamped it because they're supposed to be we supposedly in this uh this uh three entity of checks and balances then the courts would have corrected it if it was something otherwise intended I passed yes. the mic back. How many? Yes. Um, I also laugh at the lady. <laughs> uh, it's like people just want to hear and believe what they want, but she wouldn't say that about, you know, the right to bear arms or freedom of speech, which are in plain, simple English, just like the 13th Amendment is. Um, but for some reason, and she's supposed to be somebody's scholar, I don't know what, who gave her her uh, diploma, but... <laughs> <laughs> I, it's just—it's quite ridiculous at this point. Um, it's very simple, you know, simple, plain English, just like the other amendments in our Constitution. Yet, for some reason, people want to overlook this one, and it has to go back to race because this specifically uh, most likely deals with black people, since we are the highest population within the prison. Um, and uh, due to white supremacy, you know, we have been brainwashed as a society um, sorry, we have been brainwashed as a society to automatically look at us as criminals as you know, as uh, to be put in our place like you were saying earlier uh, white people want to uh, have the right to be, be able to put us in our place so it just goes back 
to that slave mentality, that slave master mentality, which has, you know, only, I believe in some circumstances, has only uh, grown stronger over the years. So they can't physically enslave us outside of the prison system, so they want to control us, continue to control our minds. Um, But, yeah, she's quite ridiculous. She's not going to deny the other plain and simple English amendments but she wants to deny that one. I just don't think, ladies, shut up. <laughs> That's what I think you should do. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. You can uh, find the entire conversation that they had on our page on Facebook, Abolition Today. Uh, and also you can find other uh, conversations like that on our YouTube page under Conversations About Legal Slavery. Uh, you'd be surprised what people have to say. The director did throw me for a loop, too, when she asked that question, but I have an answer for her. Uh, she said she's not convinced, and I'm going to tell you why she's not convinced. Because she never freaking thought about it. That's why she's not convinced. Convict leasing, or the exception clause to the 13th Amendment, never came out of her lips until somebody out of nowhere said, hey, expert, what about the other 14 words in the 32-word paragraph? <laughs> I mean, it's only 14 words. Don't do nothing but talk about how and who you can be enslaved. The other 18 words are what they, they went on. So it would almost seem like she was being willfully ignorant, either that or the uh, suffering of the people of ancestry of the uh, slave, enslaved Africans here means nothing to her. It's just in a bucket with something called Jim Crow, and she's not concerned, has never looked into it. So that's why you're not convinced. You ain't never tried to be convinced. Um. And the brother asked two questions, which are profound, and we're going to try to answer them for you here tonight, at least to the best of our abilities in this initial conditions of circumstances. He said, what is the impact of the 13th Amendment, and what would the impact be if we got it removed? So we're hoping to be able to lend some insight onto that. Again, you can listen to that entire uh, conversation, as well as many others like it, uh, on our YouTube page and on our Facebook page. So our next thing we're coming up on now is going to be, unless you guys have some more follow-up comments for this particular clip that we just heard from Charles Sullivan. No, I want to listen Andy? to the full clip first before I, I speak more on that. Yes, there were other people in the audience who came up and talked about it after they had done it. Even a judge asked questions about the 13th Amendment exception clause, whereas the speakers never freaking mentioned it. Harmony, you were saying now, I was saying I agree with you, so I'm going to um, actually listen to the full clip um, before I comment more on it. Okay, yes, yes. It's amazing how often you run across people that do that. Go ahead. You said you also something? Oh, sorry. No, no I was saying I also agree with you, uh, Max. It is a lack of, you know, her never hearing about it because we're all at one point. Um, have been ignorant of this issue, um, but I feel like on a mass scale that even when folks hear about it, they still want to be in a certain level of ignorance. Um, but yeah, I definitely agree with you. It's definitely a lot to take in. It changes your whole life. Like you got to look at everything different. Like now, you know what I mean? It changes your perspective, and you have these now new glasses to see the reality in front of you, rather than what you. Uh, thought it was, now what you know it is. And that's why we provide so many facts here. Yusuf? Anything Yeah, else? I agree. I agree. All right. Well, 
with, with that being said, man, I want to go ahead and take this opportunity. As I said, we've been leading up to you, you know what I mean? So we want to talk, hear from you uh, some of the court cases and challenges of the 13th Amendment, uh, Circular 3591. We heard about that in the clips somewhat. So is there any way that something like that can be applied uh, for what we're trying to achieve here as well? Because, you know, the end game is not necessarily to remove the or repeal the 13th Amendment, the end game is to free our people who are unjustly incarcerated by the freaking millions and to end the uh, constant hunting of our children and family members and to receive some sort of equality in the supposedly land of the free. But anyway, uh, Yusuf, I've been looking forward to this. So the mic is yours, brother. Hey, thank you, thank you. So we want to take a legal look at how we got here. You know, we know the route it took legislatively, but we want to look at how this concept of prison labor really began. And we start back in 1790 at uh, the Walnut Street Prison, what was called the Penitentiary in Pennsylvania. This is the first idea of having a prison. So the word penitentiary comes from the word penitence you know, seeking forgiveness. And so in 1790, now you want to bear in mind that this this idea of prison labor is going to start in the north because in the south they had slavery. It was just outright slavery. So we're going to, when we start talking prison labor, it's quite natural that the first iteration is going to come from the north. So at this point in time, prison labor and slave labor weren't synonymous. The penitentiary system focused more on penitence and rehabilitation through isolation to read the Bible and work. The prisoners weren't allowed to even communicate with each other. So this Pennsylvania system was the first prison reform in 1820. I'm sorry. This led to the first prison reform in 1820. So you know how they always start uh, repurposing things. We're going to notice all the different repurposes, reforms, reforms. So this was the first system that was set up around 1820. All all states started following this method until they came up with the Auburn system, which was established in, at Auburn Prison in 1830, where the idea of saying, well, let's come up with a congregate system so we can have collective labor to where we can operate like a factory and the prison officials would actually become the uh, factory managers, and now the prison labor's main goal was profit. So the first idea of let's profit off of this in the prison system started generating up, up in the north in 1830. So then when we fast forward to 1852, we run across San Quentin Prison, or at the time it was just a, a ship in the San Francisco Bay. And this was the first idea of let's construct a prison and operate it privately just to see what's going to happen. And within four years, it wound up failing, and the state of California wound up taking it over. And then we know as we went forward, everything led up to the so-called Emancipation Proclamation of 1863. And then we went into the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th Amendment coming in 1865, the 14th Amendment coming in 1866, which dealt with citizenship and equal protection uh, under the law, and the 15th Amendment of 1870, the Voting Rights Act. 
So these three were called the Reconstruction Amendments, and we're going to post the link for anyone who wants to read up on that. So as we see, the first major interpretations of the 13th Amendment didn't involve the persons who were, I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead of myself. So the first case that dealt with the 13th Amendment was called the Slaughterhouse Cases. You can find this at 83 U.S. 36. It's a case uh, in 1873. It originated in Louisiana. So what was happening, you had a group of private butchers who were challenging a Louisiana statute that was banning animal slaughter in all sections of the city of New Orleans, this one section which created a monopoly. And so the petitioners equated being forced to work for the city or not at all they equated it to involuntary servitude. So here's what the court ruled in that case. The court ruled the main purpose of the 13th Amendment was to abolish African slavery and its incidents. This is the actual language from the, from the lawsuit. The court in Slaughterhouse did not consider prison labor as an incident of slavery. Once a person fell under the exception clause, or at that time it was still referred to as the punishment clause, the state is justified in depriving the person of his life and liberty. This led to what was called the civil rights cases. That's 109 U.S. 3 in 1883. So although the Reconstruction Amendments were supposedly conjoined, the the rulings in the civil rights cases was the first known instance where the 13th and 14th Amendment would differentiate it from each other. So this is this is a key component right here. Up until this point, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were sort of like unified in, in manner. But in the ruling that came from the civil rights cases, the 13th Amendment got separated from the 14th Amendment. Justice Bradley said that the 13th Amendment simply abolished slavery and gave Congress the power to regulate private individuals' actions in order to eradicate it. He viewed the 14th Amendment as giving Congress the power to nullify state laws that either abridge citizen privileges and immunities or deprive the person of life, liberty, and property without due process. This is the exact moment when they were legally considered different, and the 14th Amendment could not be used to strike down slavery-related actions against the states. So as such... When he started moving forward I want to backtrack a little bit I'm sorry If we go back to 1944 This is 1844 When the first Instances of convict leasing Began down in Louisiana But at that time Because slavery was still in effect These These uh, early convicts That were being leased out Were going to be whites being leased out So convict leasing didn't take off until 1865 and 1866 with the passing of the Black Codes. By exploiting the exception clause in the convict leasing system, the South was able to uh, rescue its economy that was lost as a result of the ending of chattel slavery. So some of the earliest companies that used prison labor was the Tennessee Coal, Iron, and Railroad Company, which was owned by U.S. Steel, and U.S. Steel, of course, is J.P. Morgan. And you have uh, uh, the R.J. Reynolds uh, Company, you know, Reynolds Wrap and all of that. They own many brands, but 
they were uh, the main ones in dealing with tobacco and many other companies. There was uh, uh, Haynes Corporation. Many companies, they dealt with convict leasing at that time. So it wasn't until... Sorry, give me one moment. It wasn't until 1929 where the passage of the Hawes-Cooper Convict Labor Act in 1929 allowed states to remove the interstate commerce uh, nature of prison-made goods, and it prohibited the sale of such goods in their state, even if the goods were produced in another state. So that was the first time that a law was passed to basically outlaw convict leasing because we know many workers in the coal mines and just regular work regular regular people were complaining that they were losing the, losing their jobs and losing out to these companies that were using convict labor so the Hawes Cooper Act was passed in an effort to cut down on the amount of prisoners that were being used and then a few years later, the Ashurst-Sumners Act was passed in 1935, and it made it unlawful to knowingly transport in interstate or foreign commerce goods made by convict labor. So these were some of the things that, that happened in the beginning. So once these two acts were passed, we basically had a lull. For many years, but of course we know Jim Crow was going on during these years as well. So they found another way to still, you know, put a put a monkey wrench in there or or block the road. So from the 1940s until about the 1980s, and we know the beginning of the private prison industry began at that time. So there were certain cases that came up during this time. And one of the first ones that we look at is a case called Bailey versus Alabama. This is uh, 219 U.S. 219 that, that uh, went to the courts in 1911. So Bailey was contracted to work on a farm for a year at $12 a month. He quit after a month and did not return the $15 that was advanced to him. Under Alabama law, Bailey's act was criminal. So he was convicted and sentenced to 136 days of hard labor under Alabama P&H law. So the question that was presented to the United States Supreme Court was, did the, did the Alabama law violate the 13th Amendment? The court concluded that the law was a restriction on personal rights. Uh, judged by its effect and not by its pretense, the law violated the 13th Amendment. Involuntary servitude meant more than slavery. So, like, a case that it was passed, but it was really limited in scope. Then we came to Pollock versus Williams, and all of these links are, are going to be on our page. We can see a brief history of some of the things that was happening as to how it was passing through the courts. And you notice that all of these are dealing with people who are not actually in prison, because one thing we're going to always see is, you know, many of the major interpretations of the 13th Amendment didn't involve the persons who were affected by the exception clause, the prisoners. 
you know, sort of like how everything today is compared to slavery except slavery itself. So as it's passing through the courts, it's just more and more dealing with labor disputes, labor disputes, labor disputes, basically. Until we came to Jones versus Alfred H. Alfred H. Mayer Company. This is uh, 392 U.S. 409. This case was decided in 1968. In my opinion, this is the case that broke our causes of action for 13th Amendment uh, violations. The court ruled that it is not a mere prohibition of state laws establishing or upholding slavery, but an absolute declaration that slavery or involuntary servitude should not exist in any part of the United States, public or private. They were talking about that that it should it apply to the prisons as well. And that's followed up a few years later with what was called the Percy Amendment. So Congress relaxed some of the strictures of, of uh, say, for instance, the Ashurst-Somners and the Hawes-Cooper because evidently someone put some money in a lobbyist's pocket and said, hey, we, we make a lot of money off of this. So from the Percy Amendment, they created what was called the private sector, private industry enhancement certification program, or it's known mainly as the PIE program, spelled like PI, which allows private companies to employ prison labor under very strict conditions. And since 1979, the PI program has certified 37 jurisdictions to engage in joint ventures with private companies to employ inmates. The Percy, the Percy Amendment in most state contracts require only a competitive wage compared to that of other inmates. <laughs> that's, that's sad right there. So I want to just go over my notes. Sorry, I'm going through like three pages of notes. I just wanted to touch on a few things that we can discuss more and more as we go on. So we want to look at some actual cases of prisoners actually bringing suits to court. And the first thing I want to note is, you know, if any of our rights, you know, myself or Harmony or you, Max, if we, we wanted to bring a civil rights case to the courts, we just go right ahead and file a night what people refer to as 1983, you know, 42 U.S. Uh, code 1983. Before a prisoner, the prisoner has to exhaust all of his remedies before he can bring a case to the court, basically setting up another barrier. And for anyone who's ever been to prison, those barriers are very strong of even for you to exhaust your remedies. They can have you tied up in all kinds of red tape for months or even years just by putting you in solitary and you have no access to the outside world, not receiving mail or not being able to send mail. So if you need to send a letter to the warden or send a letter to the Department of Corrections, you know, anyone within that hierarchy of what's considered exhausting your remedies, you're blocked from being able to do it. They have a way of blocking you. So that would be an uphill battle for them dealing with the 13th Amendment. And, you know, hundreds and hundreds of cases have been filed, and it always comes down to the courts relying on the 13th Amendment exception clause. 
and it goes all the way back to when I first mentioned the civil rights cases where the 13th and 14th Amendment were actually separated. Because they were separated, a person can't claim, well, my rights are being violated. I'm not receiving, you know, equal protection under the law. And the reason that it's not going to hold up under the 13th Amendment is because the 13th Amendment has been separated from the 14th Amendment. So, you know, in looking over all of this, you can see that it's an uphill battle dealing with the 13th Amendment in courts because even recently, you know, many cases have usurped, you know, the real meat and potatoes of the 13th Amendment where, you know, I always refer to Tillicum versus SeaWorld, where it was the five orcas, you know, you know, the ACLU filed on their behalf saying that they were being enslaved and what was happening to them is a violation of the 13th Amendment. And quite naturally, the court ruled, well, involuntary servitude and slavery are human conditions. That doesn't apply to an animal. And then you have the NCAA saying, okay, we, we can deny wages to the players because the 13th Amendment allows, you know, unpaid labor unpaid prison labor. So these are just two instances where they play around with it in the courts, and there's been no real movement with the exception of, I would say, two cases. One is going to be the – hold on. I have to go to my other notes on the page. uh, It was McGrary versus – is it Pilot, the – McGarry versus Polito, the case that came out of Massachusetts. This person happened to be in the county jail. He wasn't a state prisoner. He was sentenced. He was, he was. Uh, I'm sorry. He was a pretrial detainee, and he was being forced to work 14 hours a day. And so he brought suit against the warden. And the court actually ruled in his favor only based on the fact that he wasn't uh, he wasn't convicted of a crime, so they upheld that. But then there's also the cases of the immigration detainees. As I come towards the close, the immigration detainees who won their suit because they were being forced to work for a dollar. I don't I don't recall if it was a dollar an hour or a dollar per day. But the court ruled in their favor, stating that it violated the 13th Amendment for them not being paid, you know, a a, a living wage. So these are just some of the the things that are going on in the courts with it. It's going to be ongoing. There are a lot more cases that are still pending at the moment on state and federal levels. So we'll keep an eye out for these things and... I'll pass it back to you, Max. Well, that was well thought out, brother. I appreciate all that information. <clears throat> I was taking quite a bit of notes of things that we might have to look back into. I, I'll, I did I'll, notice that I'll uh, send you a copy of my notes. I'll, I'll email it to you. All right. All right. That sounds great, man. I, I, I'll, I'd like to have that information. But in any case, it makes this show a repeatable show. I need to go back and listen. You know what I mean? Uh, right. I, I was listening to you trace it all the way back from, to 1790 in the penitentiaries with the Quakers. And and then I remembered right. that 
something else happened in, uh, around that period, just I think 10 years uh, prior to that, it was 1779, or 10 years after that, 1779 is when England or Britain started uh, changing their laws in order to start sending their, uh, I guess what they were calling criminals here to the United States. And uh, I have to look at in my notes as well. Your mic is acting up on you a little bit, Max. Oh, I'm sorry. How was that now? Oh, yeah, it's perfect. All right. So, yeah, Britain uh, in 1779. It was perfect perfect for a second. Uh oh. Um, Let me see if I can do something about this. Okay, how's that sound? Better? That sounds much better. All right, so in, in 1779, Parliament enacted the Penitentiary Act, which introduced state prisons for the first time. And the act was drafted by prison reformer John Howard and jurist William Blackstone. Uh, up again, and, I, and I know what you're saying is really good. That's why I want to make sure your mic is clear as you're talking. Uh, FBI got a file on me, I guess. <laughs> The enemy's trying to shut you know, me up. You know, it'll clear up, and then as soon as you start flowing, that's when the choppiness comes in again. Well, that's weird. I'm sorry about that. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pass it to Harmony while I work on that. So Harmony, you go ahead and uh, offer any commentary that you Yeah, want. it's chopping. Like, I mean, I just want to make sure. Uh, your voice is chopping as well. Oh, it may be my phone because I'm hearing you both as choppy. Let me call from my cell. I'm, I'm on the home phone, so let me call from my cell. Okay. Okay, so in the meantime, I will. Uh, can you hear me better now, Omni? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, so uh, what I was saying is 1779, with Parliament enacted that Penitentiary Act, and that introduced state prisons for the first time. And it was drafted by prison reformer John Howard and Joris William Blackstone. It recommended imprisonment as an alternative sentence to death or transportation. And the American colonies had been used as a destination for transporting English criminals. England was building prisons in America to provide a colonized workforce of European indentured servants. Only two prisons were built in London. So they were, you know, it was the Quakers. And at the same time over in Britain, they were... uh, Getting involved in the profit. Are you back, Yusuf? Oh, hold on. Let me see if I got you back here. There you go. Yeah, I'm here. Yes, oh, sir. Welcome back. Yeah, that hey, sounds you sound better. Nice and clear now, man. Hey, I, I, apologies to our listeners. Remember to ground our training wheels right now. We're just starting by the end of, uh, say, next year. Uh, when the end of the year comes along, you're going to be surprised at how far we've grown. Right now, we're working with what we and we appreciate it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, we'll have a high tech communication center by then. Oh yeah. The uh Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center is gonna help make sure that happens along with Samer Urge, indeed. So yeah, uh how many you want to make some commentary on what you just heard from Yusuf? Um, I just wanted to thank you for all that information. It was um a lot to retain, so I would also like a copy of those notes, please. Um, sure, sure, but, absolutely Yeah, it's very detailed and very much appreciated I'd like to see your lawyer side come out more often Your little legal side <laughs> <laughs> You're a jack of all trades But um, yeah, I would definitely love to see those notes um, And keep them for my own, you know right. Own records and 
But yeah, it's very much appreciated. Thank you. So. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate yeah, that. As I'm going to do, any listeners, you can always just go back to the archive uh, audio and listen through again. There's quite a bit of information here that you may not catch the first time around. So these are uh, teaching tools. You can go back and listen to them over and over again, or even with groups and, you know, talk about what we're talking about. Thank you again, Yusuf. Uh, well done. appreciate that uh, efforts and the details that you provided with us. I want to keep it moving, though, and get into the next part, which is the question. Uh, how do we change the 13th Amendment and make slavery illegal with no exceptions? Uh, Yusuf, would you like to tackle that? Sure. Uh, you know, you and I tossed the idea back and forth with each other the other day, and we came up with some pretty good answers, I believe. You know, well, uh, this, in fact, this, we came up with... Uh, Sorry? This particular question is in regard to how do we change the 13th Amendment and make it Oh, illegal. I'm sorry. Looking at the, the, looking we, at the wrong it? section. <laughs> yeah. Oh, how do we change it? Well, we yes. the answer is a con, uh, congressional convention on Article 5 Convention of States. How's that for an answer? Simple, yeah. that's, that's real simple. Uh, Congress, congressional convention requires that states get together and have a three-quarter approval for any amendment to be repealed and replaced, very much like the 18th Amendment was repealed and prohibition was repealed, and it was replaced by the 21st Amendment. And then a convention of states is something that's already in process right now. We've talked about it for some years, you and I, and other abolitionists right. in our circles. It's pretty much the same thing. States have to get together, and they have to have a majority, and they have to take it back to the states and get it approved. But that's the second way that a, a federal amendment can be changed. No federal amendment can be amended. It must be repealed and replaced. And that's what we hope to do here uh, with the 13th Amendment. Well, I mean, we hope to do that. It's all well and fine, but there's another question now, right? <laughs> and the question that comes after that is, how will repealing the 13th Amendment affect society and law? And uh, I'll pass to you first. Yusuf, if you want to go over all or any, uh, feel free. And maybe uh, Harmony might want to go over some as well. I'll, I'll handle the first two, being that much of what I just uh, gave covered a lot of that. And the first being return of rights under the Constitution as a citizen. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. So the first being that it returns the rights under the Constitution as a citizen. Remember, going back to the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, the Reconstruction Amendments, they all were tied together to give what was supposed to be freedom and thus, getting that freedom, you become enfranchised. That word doesn't even exist. When you get punished under the 13th Amendment, you become disenfranchised. And disenfranchised means you lose your 14th and 15th Amendment rights. And when you dig a little deeper, you also lose your 6th and 8th Amendment rights, your right to due process and your due process and your protection against cruel and unusual punishment. So – Repealing and replacing the 13th Amendment, taking away that exception clause is going to automatically restore four amendments, not to mention the other amendment, the other amendment rights you lose through incarceration with 
you know, your right to privacy and your right, you know, the freedom of speech and all of these things. And then number two, it restores voting rights to citizens. So also, again, dealing with the 15th Amendment, we know once a person is convicted, they no, they no longer can vote. And we know that part of the voting system when it comes to districting, they count prisoners. And it's something that I'm researching right now as to which district does a prisoner would a prisoner see because a person could be registered to vote in say Columbus, Ohio. He gets convicted, he gets shipped off to prison in California. California counts him for districting purposes and census purposes, but he's not even legally registered to vote, and he's not even a citizen of the state of California, but yet California districts are counted as that person being there. So these are some of the things and that, that would uh, affect society and law. Just dealing with the first two issues, Max. Thank you. Uh, indeed, it would empower those amendments. How many? Any of those stand out for you that you want to point out in particular? Um, can you repeat the question? Well, we're talking about how will repealing the Thirteenth Amendment affect society and law? Mm-hmm. And we had a list in our planning page. I don't know if you did. You have, do you have the list up? I do it, not have the list up, Max. Okay, it's not, I'll, I'll go ahead and something while you uh, pull it's it up. Uh, a couple of things. You know, this, this, was just, this was just conversations that we've been having over time on how, what kind of change comes from the 13th Amendment. And we've talked to attorneys and we've talked to constitutional lawyers before, uh, and uh, we've talked to experts, as you heard today, in the field and things like that. And I believe that it should end civil death and criminal disenfranchisement, as Yusuf just pointed out. Uh, because civil death is not a constitutional thing. It only happens because of the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment makes you a non-citizen, a non-person. You don't even deserve human rights uh, according to the way it's structured. So it negates your 14th Amendment, your 15th Amendment, and every other amendment that, that isn't in the Constitution. And by taking out that exception clause, we empower the Constitution itself, your 6th Amendment, your 8th Amendment rights. Now your 14th is back, your 15th is back. So I think that that is a big thing. Just by itself is worth fighting for. And as Yusuf mentioned, restoring voting rights as citizens is so important, man. You know how many millions of people can't vote right now because they have a felony charge on their record, and in many states they've lost the ability to vote for life. It's outrageous. I suggest that you might listen to a speech by, of all people, Al Sharpton, about that particular topic. Uh, he was really, really profound on this particular issue. So, uh, Harmony, are you, uh, do you have it up yet? I do have it up. I have it up. All right. So, does any, anything on that list seem to stand out for you? I'll read the list in its entirety after uh, your comments. Okay. Um I believe uh, number three should end civil death and criminal disenfranchisement. And for me, I go to the angle of uh, police brutality uh, because right now, excuse me, right now when it comes to police brutality, it's connected to the 
uh, to the incarceral state to slavery. Um, and the root of police brutality happens to be the 13th Amendment because they are allowed to, um, the police are actually allowed to get away with killing us. Um, sorry, killing us and uh, brutalizing us. And also, um, when it comes to advocating and standing up for the rights of those who have been killed by the police, they are also allowed to, once again, you know, uh, induce force. And and also with the CEOs, which are just in-house in, uh, in police, they are allowed to, um, well, not technically allowed to, but they get away with, you know, um, not giving prisoners all of their rights. So if the 13th Amendment was um, repealed, that would affect the prison population within itself. And so there will be less people under um, the authority of COs um, and having their rights taken away. Now, I'm not a prison abolitionist person. I do believe that prisons, you know, they have a place in society, but not as they are today and not under the ruling of enslavement. So I could, uh, I believe number three and um, number six as well, being able to challenge slave-like conditions in local, state, federal, and even international courts without the 13th Amendment's loophole to protect it as an institution. And that would help shut down a lot of um, institutions that run slavery. So I uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so yeah, no, it's great um, like I'm not as well as versed as y'all, so I'd be like, <laughs> I'm not as well versed. You're doing good. Um, You're doing good. Don't worry. Doing good. And let me let me go ahead and read them. Let me read the whole list so people okay. know what the list is. So, you know, we're kind of cherry picking what we like about it, but this is just stuff mm-hmm. that we were able to come with, and it's six things that we think will change for the good in regards to repealing and replacing the 13th Amendment. Number one, and in no particular order of importance, by the way, number one, returns the rights under the Constitution as a citizen, and that empowers the 6th and 8th Amendments. It empowers the 14th and 15th Amendments. Restores voting rights as citizens. It should end civil debt and criminal disenfranchisement. It's possibly an end to forced labor for commercial industries inside prisons. It helps criminalize illegal human trafficking by the state and private industries. For instance, Core Civic has a prison in Eloy, Arizona, that houses Hawaiians, Californians, and Nevadas, and soon-to-be Puerto Ricans. That is uh, illegal. <laughs> That's human trafficking. And number six, like Harmony just said, you can now challenge any slave-like conditions in local, state, federal, and even international courts without the 13th Amendment's loophole to protect it as an institution. As Yusuf has so eloquently explained case after case, even when it was just going back to about labor disputes before it became about people or prisoners as it should, um, that this is an institution that was meant to be protected, and that's what is happening with the 13th Amendment. They can no longer argue that for you. So there would be a lot of lawsuits coming out for sure. All right. I hope that we really gave uh, you a, a, some helpful insights tonight on how uh, the 13th Amendment has affected the United States of America and beyond, and what would happen if we should try to remove that and repeal it and replace it with something else. 
so hopefully we did a great job. I know my co-host did as a witness here, uh, providing information on the circumstances and the facts behind them. Uh, so I, now I want to move on to the area where we're going to have our final comments in regards to the program this evening and then go into our quotes and go. But before we do that, I just want to let you know what's coming up. <laughs> and, you know, we're coming to the conclusion. I'm going to miss this part. We did, I think it was beautifully done. Uh, that's Bridging the Gap. This is our final uh, segment for part one. Part two, we may do. It depends on you. We'll talk about it later. In the meantime, I'm going to pass the microphone over to Yusuf. Any final comments on the programs and quotes? You know, I just want to, uh, you know, big up both of you. You know, you, you know, we covered a lot. I mean, this is a very deep subject, and I can't wait to go back and listen to this, to hear this this show, because so much was uh, disseminated in tonight's program. And also, I'd just like to welcome all of our new listeners. You know, we have... You know, I see our posts getting shared all over the place, and I'm hopeful that we have a lot of new listeners, new followers on our pages, you know, the Abolition Today, uh, also our Abolition Today YouTube page. And also, uh, Max, if you have the opportunity, could you remind about the uh, the artist search that we're doing, the information, because I don't have the information in front of me. Okay, uh, we're looking for uh, songs, poems, uh, well-produced presentations, videos from one to uh, five minutes long uh, in regards to uh, anything that shines a spotlight on the 13th Amendment, modern slavery, prison for profit, the things we're talking about right here on this program. We want the artists to be heard, as you've seen throughout our entire uh, broadcast. So uh, send it to abolitioncenter at gmail.com, and uh, we will listen to it and get back to you. Awesome, thank you. And I'd just like to close out with uh, I always have to refer back to Brother Malcolm. If you're not ready to die for it, take the word freedom out of your vocabulary. It's been a pleasure this evening, you know, and Max Harmony is great working with you guys. I believe that we put out a lot of great information. I get a lot of positive feedback from a lot of people, so just want to say it's a pleasure working with you guys. Thank you so much. Harmony? Um, I just wanted to also say um, it's been a pleasure working with y'all. Um, I'm personally excited for this opportunity, and uh, you guys are both my mentors. I always tell everyone about y'all <laughs> when I talk <laughs> about, like, the um, prison work and, you know, slavery abolition work that I um I do, and when I'm educating folks on the 13th Amendment, I always mention Jesus and Max. <laughs> um, but I also wanted to close out um, with two quotes, um, both from Asada Shakur. Uh, one, which I feel like that we're doing as um, a group as um, with this podcast, and that is um, part of being a revolutionary is creating a vision that is more humane, that is more fun, too that is more loving, It's really working to create something beautiful. And I believe with this podcast and our page um, and how it's growing, I really do believe that we are creating something beautiful as revolutionaries. And um, her, one of her more, more famous quotes, um, it is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. 
We must love each other and support each other. We have nothing to lose but our chains. Mm-hmm. So, great Amen. show. Thank, Thank you, you guys much. so much. We got a heck of a, a clip, a uh, segment set up for you right after this. It's going to take us out nice, and we barely got enough time to play it. So I'm just going to say thank you for being here today. And uh, Yusuf, if you can go ahead and introduce the final segment, please. Yes, the final segment of Bridging the Gap, Ozzie Davis Reed's autobiography of Frederick Douglass, Part 7, Volume 1, where, he, where we witness the birth of a new North Star and hear the dedication of a lifetime. If you like what you've heard so far, let us know. We will purchase Volume 2 and continue the presentation. If you would like to lend an assist and purchase the download for us, send the tracks to abolitionistcenter at gmail.com. We'll end tonight's program with Anthony Hamilton and Elena Boynton performing Freedom from the movie Django Unchained. Until next week, think about abolition today. Abolitiontoday.org. Peace. Abolition. Abolition. To my friends in England, I owe my freedom in the United States. They learned through correspondence that Captain Auld, my master, would take 150 pounds sterling for me. And this sum they promptly raised and paid for my liberation, placing the papers of my manumission into my hands before they would tolerate the idea of my return to my native land. To this commercial transaction, to this blood money, I owe my immunity from the operation of the fugitive slave law. Having remained abroad for nearly two years and being about to return to America, not as I left it, a slave, but a free man, prominent friends of the cause of emancipation in England offered to make me a testimonial, both on the grounds of personal regard to me and also to the cause to which they were so ardently devoted. I suggested that my friends should simply give me the means of obtaining a printing press and materials to enable me to start a paper advocating the interest of my enslaved and oppressed people. I told them that perhaps the greatest hindrance to the adoption of abolition principles by the people of the United States was the low estimate everywhere in that country placed upon the Negro as a man, that because of his assumed natural inferiority, people reconciled themselves to his enslavement and oppression as being inevitable, if not desirable. The grand thing to be done, therefore, was to change this estimation by disproving his inferiority and demonstrating his capacity for a more exalted civilization than slavery and prejudice had assigned him. In my judgment, a newspaper in the hands of persons of the despised race would, by calling out and making them acquainted with their own latent powers, by enkindling their hope of a future and developing their moral force, prove a most powerful means of removing prejudice and awaking an interest in them. These views I laid before my friends. The result was that nearly $2,500 was speedily raised toward my establishing such a paper as I had indicated. On December 3rd, 1847, I launched my own newspaper, The North Star, in Rochester, New York. I chose this name because a slave followed the North Star when he escaped north to freedom. On the masthead, I inscribed as the paper's motto the words, 
Right is of no sex. Truth is of no color. God is the father of us all, and we are all brethren. In a message to my oppressed countrymen, I wrote, We solemnly dedicate the North Star to the cause of our long oppressed and plundered fellow countrymen. May God bless the undertaking to your good. It shall fearlessly assert your rights, faithfully proclaim your wrongs, and earnestly demand for you instant and even-handed justice. Giving no quarter to slavery in the South, it will hold no truce with oppressors in the North, while it shall boldly advocate emancipation for our enslaved brethren, it shall omit no opportunity to gain for the nominally free, complete enfranchisement. Every effort to injure or degrade you or your cause, originating wheresoever or with whomsoever, shall find in it a constant, unswerving, and inflexible foe. Remember that we are one, that our cause is one, and that we must help each other if we would succeed. We have drunk to the dregs the bitter cup of slavery. We have worn the heavy yoke. We have sighed beneath our bonds and writhed beneath the bloody lash. Cruel mementos of our oneness are indelibly marked on our living flesh. We are one with you under the ban of prejudice and proscription, one with you under the slander of inferiority, one with you in social and political disfranchisement. What you suffer, we suffer. What you endure, we endure. We are indissolubly united and must fall or flourish together. I had resolved that whatever power I had should be devoted to the freeing of my people from slavery, and that once free, they should enjoy all the rights, privileges, and immunities enjoyed by any other members of American society. To the achievement of these goals, I dedicated the rest of my life. Discover No time 